Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Listen, if you would, to the first five verses. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Have you heard of the expression, major in the majors? Right? It means focus on what's most important. Right? Don't, uh, don't make mountains out of molehills. Don't get distracted by those things that don't matter in the long run. Now, we can forget this sound wisdom, even in our own personal pursuit of Christ. Uh, we know that He's God, the Son incarnate, that he's far more valuable than, than anything, but we are tempted, we're prone to major in the minors, you know, putting work or play or entertainment or what have you before him. And so soon uh, the Son of God incarnate becomes sort of a, a footnote in the essay of our life, instead of actually being our, our life. And churches can major in the minors too. We, we plan our services, we plan our schedule of events, we plan our retreats, we organize our volunteers, and somewhere along the way, we forget why we're here in the first place, why all these services are being organized, why all this is happening. Right? We, we're prone to neglect God and fail to see our need for the Holy Spirit to be at work in all of these events taking place. And when we major in the minors, Christians and churches inevitably, inevitably become flabby and weak. And to grow strong, we have to major in the majors. Now, Acts is a history of the early church, really the, the earliest church. Luke is the author. And Luke has given us an amazing record of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, uh, to really to the end of the earth. And in the first 15 books, the gospel spread under the preaching of Peter and John and Stephen and Philip and Barnabas and Paul. And in chapter 16, the spotlight now sort of finally and firmly is placed on Paul. Paul takes center stage as he begins his second missionary journey and not only, and this is what's interesting, and this is what I'm not, I'm not sure you, you, you notice unless you're really paying attention. I don't know how much we talk about it. But as Paul begins his second missionary journey, he doesn't, he doesn't merely go to people who have already heard the gospel. He goes to churches. He revisits churches, and he preaches the gospel to them because his concern is that they are going to major in the minors and inevitably become flabby and weak. He doesn't want to see that, and so he goes and he, he seeks to strengthen them. 
right? So for us, we might ask, well, what do churches need in order to be strong, right? What do churches need in order to be strengthened? And I would say that, that Paul is demonstrating for us in these few verses really what, what every, every church needs, certainly what every Christian needs, but what churches and Christians need in order to be strengthened, right? First, the wisdom of God, Second, the love of God. And third, the knowledge of God. Wisdom of God, love of God, and knowledge of God. So may God use these words that I'm about to preach to strengthen our faith, lest we become flabby and weak. All right, first, the wisdom of God. Now look again at verse 1. Paul uh, and Silas had been traveling through the region surrounding Antioch, Uh, Syria and Cilicia, but now Paul heads even further north to Derbe and to Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul finds Timothy. And in verse 4, we see that Paul wants Timothy to join him, to accompany him on this missionary journey. Paul did not want Mark, right? We saw that last week. Mark had been unreliable once, and, uh, and, and Paul didn't want to risk Mark being unreliable again. But Paul still wanted some help. And Paul sets his sights on Timothy. Now, we think that God saved Timothy on Paul's first trip to Lystra at least two years ago. And Timothy has grown spiritually. He's gained a good reputation, right? It says in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Uh, When you read that word brothers, uh, I don't want you to think merely men. That was a a gender-neutral word in Greek to describe all the believers, the church members, men and women, in Lystra and Iconium. So Timothy was well spoken of by them. And why did they respect Timothy so much? Well, probably for his godliness, uh, spiritual zeal, uh, his love for the Lord, perhaps his eagerness to serve that that young church. I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy had a reputation for being unusually reliable. I mean, certainly that's what what Paul was looking for. And I would say that that Timothy reminds us of the need of a good reputation, right? Others are blessed and others are encouraged by you when you are reliable and eager to serve and love the Lord and, and heartily pursuing righteousness. And it can take time to gain a good reputation, to be the type of man or woman who is well spoken of. You need to be tested. It appears that Timothy had been a Christian long enough to be tested, to be well spoken of by believers throughout the region in which he lived. You need to be tested. But when you have a track record of showing up, right, of pursuing godliness, and of encouraging the saints, I guarantee that you will be called on the way Paul called on Timothy. We'll take a look at what happens next. Well, in verse 1, Luke says that Timothy had a a Jewish mom and a Greek or Gentile non-Jewish father. And at this time, by this time, you really shared the ethnicity uh, of your mother. So so Timothy was considered ethnically Jewish. And it, it bothered the Jews who knew that his father was Greek who knew or presumed that Timothy had not been circumcised. Well, that bothered them. 
Again, apparently this had become public knowledge. I don't know how. (laughs) Don't want to think about it. I just know that they considered him to be an apostate Jew. And so that presented Paul with a very practical problem. Right? He could not enter the Jewish synagogues with Timothy. But he wanted Timothy's help. He really valued Timothy's assistance. And so Paul made a game-time decision. Paul, the text says Paul circumcised Timothy. Did he do it himself? Did he have someone do it? I don't know. I think I'd have somebody else do it. Now, just to be clear, we see at the end of verse 3, because of the Jews who were in those places. Paul took this step of circumcising the uncircumcised but Jewish Timothy. Paul took this step because of the Jews who were there. In other words, so as not to offend the Jews whom he wanted to evangelize. Now, this is interesting. Remember Acts 15. Some Jews thought that faithful Christian men needed to be circumcised before they could be saved. That's what we've been talking about for a number of weeks now. And Paul detested that teaching. He found it entirely unbiblical, not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel, a false theology that he strongly and wholeheartedly rejected and opposed. And in fact, Paul records in Galatians 2 that one day, while he was on a trip in Jerusalem with a Gentile believer by the name of Titus, Titus, who had not been circumcised, some Jewish, presumably believers, came to Paul and said Titus needed to be circumcised. And at this point, Paul said, no way. He refused because he was convinced that in this scenario, circumcising Titus would be undermining the gospel. In this context, circumcising Titus would be the equivalent of communicating circumcision is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. He would be teaching people that Titus needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. But in Lystra, when there's another young man uncircumcised, Paul has him circumcised or circumcises him. Why? I hope it's obvious. Here, Paul is concerned with unbelieving Jews. He wants to preach in synagogues and explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and and prophecies. But to gain entrance into that synagogue, he's got to follow the Jewish customs. So, if circumcision is about gaining entrance into the kingdom of God, Paul will have nothing to do with it. But if it's about gaining entrance to the synagogue for the sake of evangelism, Paul says, bring me the knife. All right, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Paul wisely goes about the business of removing any any barriers. I mean, elsewhere he says that, you know, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Elsewhere he says that it doesn't matter. So he will remove any barriers to the proclamation of the gospel that need to be removed. That's wisdom. All right, what does this mean for us today? Now, I am so grateful when Christians pray for open doors. It's a biblical prayer. I'm, probably someone's prayed it this morning. Maybe I prayed for it. 
I think I did. Open doors for Corey and Christy. Right? We, we, we pray that God, and what we're saying is God, open the door. God, go ahead of me, open the door, you know, bring people into my path, give me opportunities to make Christ known, soften their hearts. This is a good prayer. God, open doors. We should pray this. But it seems from, from, from Paul's example that, that you should remove any trash piling up in front of those doors, whether they're open or closed. So, yes, pray God opens doors, but do everything you can in order to be well-received by those in your life, by your family, by your friends, by your neighbors. And this takes wisdom. It just takes wisdom. So be wise and, and get in front of those who need the gospel. It takes wisdom. So wisdom may lead you, for example, these are not, not musts, these are things that might be wise to do. So wisdom might lead you to, to volunteer at a place like the Good Samaritan Health Center or the Sandy Springs Mission or various crisis pregnancy centers. Because over time, as you spend time uh, ministering to people's bodies in that sense, caring for them, caring about their future, right, as they see how much you care for them, you're clearing away the brush so that as they hear you also sharing the gospel with them, right, their hearts might be more softened to receive the word of God. Just wisdom. Right? God can do what he wants. Wisdom would have you remove any brush you can, which often means getting in their lives. So similarly, wisdom may lead you to involve yourself in your apartment community or in your neighborhood, right? Don't just pray for open doors. Walk past the doors in your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbors, right? Don't, don't just be there. Drop off a pie at someone who moves in. You know, it's a lot better than circumcision. <laughs> it's just simple, simple little things, right? To say, I'm here I know you're here. I care about you. This is one little representation of that. And who knows where the, where the Lord might take that. Host a dessert in your neighborhood. Right? Be known. It's just wisdom. Just being wise. And God may use that wisdom to give you a, a credibility in your apartment community, in your neighborhood that you don't otherwise have. Just wisdom. So in Acts 16, 1 through 3, Paul is really living out what he teaches in 1 Corinthians 9, 10. He writes, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So how, how do you grow in this area? How do you need to become like your community in order to win your community for Christ? Well, the answer might not be in something you have to do, in something you must do. The answer is in wisdom in being there, in being known. All right, the, the wisdom of God. Pray for it. Right, that brings us to our next point. Second, the love of God. The love of God. Now, I know it will surprise not many of you to know that I've had some friction with a few people in my life. There were a few guys in high school I preferred to avoid. And even as I've gotten older, I haven't seen eye to eye with everyone that I've met. And most of us can probably think of a few phone calls that we'd rather not return. 
from people who treated us badly. I trust no one in this room would understand that. Now look again at verse 3. Paul circumcised Timothy because of the Jews. Paul wanted to see these Jewish people saved. That's pretty obvious from the text. You know, I understand that, that Timothy endured the pain, but we see Paul's interest in this Jewish evangelism. Even though he's on a, on a mission, really, to the Gentile world, you see his, his heart to see the Jews saved. He wants to remove anything that's stacked up in front of these doors so that he can bring the gospel to them, again, because of the Jews. But do you remember who the Jews are? Now look, if you would, just turn a page to the left, Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Uh, Paul is not a robot. He, just a man like us. Verse 19 of chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And by the way, they came to Lystra, right, to the very town where Paul found Timothy. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What leads a man like Paul, beaten and left for dead by a Jewish mob, to carefully and wisely strategize for the evangelization of the Jewish people? Okay, so I, just, I want you to be sort of, I want you to be shocked by that. You know, we just read the text, well, of course Paul's evangelizing. It's what he does, right? But he's evangelizing the very people who thought they had left him for dead. What makes him do that? Answer, the love of God. God gave Paul such a love for the lost, such a compassion for those on the brink of a Christless eternity that Paul would gladly risk his life to revisit the very people who tried to kill him. Now, how much did Paul love the lost? A couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 9.22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Right? Paul persecuted Christians until God saved him with the gospel. Paul hated Christians until the love of God in Christ came to him. He was a murderer of God's children until God saved him. And now, Paul lovingly longs for the blessings of the gospel to go to all. And so he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's love. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 2. I have great sorrow, Paul writes. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Do you hear Paul's love for his Jewish family members? They may want him dead, but Paul would rather die in their place. If only he could. He would rather be cut off than to see them cut off eternally from the Lord. And this is love. Right? Paul loved the lost. I know it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, 
it's common to hear, you know, love is an action, it's not an emotion. I hear that. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I do think that emotions matter. I do think that when you read the New Testament, you see the, the, the heart, if you will, of, of Paul for both the church and, and for the lost. And, and I think I'd, I'd not want to take anything away from that experience by arguing there, there wasn't an emotional component to that. So when, when we're talking about the love of God on display in our lives for others, I do think there's an emotional component to that. And here's where I think it gets really tricky. So, for example, you know, I don't, like, cry a lot. Uh, and therefore, I get really annoyed by sappy commercials that get me choked up. <laughs> and I know it's, it's funny, but it's so true. I mean, they're selling soap. But, like, dad is washing baby and mom's in the hospital and dad is crying and it's soap but the violin is playing it's just moving and and so somebody knows how to tweak my emotions and that gets me riled up okay now i asked my wife for permission to share this but she has a a tenderer heart than me uh, she calls herself a sympathetic crier and so last week, there was a tribute to the fatalities of the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant and his daughter. Terrible tragedy. My eyes dry as dust. Dina's like flooding. And so my point is like, we're all different. Like, I'd rather cry at that than like the, the commercial for sure. But we're all different, like emotionally. We, we're all moved emotionally in different ways by different things. And so here I am, I, I come to Acts 16, and I go, I want Mount Vernon to have Paul's heart for the lost. That's what I want for you. Like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we get there? And I don't, I don't want to try to manipulate you to feel for the lost. Like, even if I could do that, I don't think it would, it would last I, I could probably, I think it would be hard for me, but I could probably do something to kind of rouse you up. But I'm just not sure that commitment, that love would really be love and it would be gone probably before lunch. So whether you have a naturally tender heart or not, I want you to be so filled with the kind of love Paul must have known that it allowed him to run into the lives, run into the lives of Jewish unbelievers who wanted to kill him. I want you, I want, I want to be filled with a love like that. So what can you do? I don't want to say it's my only answer, but it is the best answer. Look to the cross of Christ. That's where you've got to start. Right? How much did God love the world? How much did God love a world in rebellion against him, hostile to him? He loved it enough to send his own son, God the Son incarnate, to the cross. Right? How much did Jesus, God the Son incarnate, love the world? This world in rebellion against him, hostile to him. He loved it enough to climb onto a cross, to bear the shame. And I am not aiming to manipulate. This is just what happened to bear the shame and the jeers, the laughter, 
the mocking of individuals pointing to his naked and beaten body. And Jesus' love was even deeper than that. He loved the world even more than that. He loved it enough to bear the wrath of God the Father, his Father on that cross, which is much more significant than any jeering or mocking that came from the crowd. It's not just that Jesus suffered physically. Jesus bore the punishment, which meant separation from God the Father and himself. The Father on that cross turned his back away from Jesus, his son. And that's loneliness. We talked about friendship last week. This is the opposite of friendship, right? I'm not going to encourage you. I'm not going to be with you. And in fact, I am going to correct you with the punishment deserved by all who have rejected me who will ever one day turn and trust in me. That's what Jesus endured. And the thing is, he didn't just endure it, okay? He chose it. And that's what love is. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's, that's love. Not that we've loved God, but that, that God loved us and sent Jesus to, to bear the wrath of God the Father. That's how the Bible is defining love. Right? Yes, yes, it is, it is God's action. It's God's decision. But it appears to be God's heart for a rebellious people. And then verse 11 of 1 John 4 immediately says, Beloved, in other words, church, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the bullseye of that one another are the other brothers and sisters in Christ. But certainly that love reaches out to your neighbors who don't know the Lord. So if I suppose if I could make you love, I would. But I can't make you love anyone. Not your brother in the pew, your sister in the pew next to you not your neighbor across the street, but I can, like that's my job, I can point you to the cross, right? I can point you to the love of God on display at Calvary. I can say, see the blood God spilled for you. See the crown of thorns he wore so you could one day wear a crown of glory. See the death Jesus endured for you. I can remind you of the plan of God the Father a plan he ordained for your good. I can remind you of the work of God the Son, a death he endured for your good. And so we sing so often, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. You look to the cross. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, some of you may be here and you, you might not even identify as a Christian. So I would say to you, to my non-Christian friends, if you see anything good in the people around you, if you, any, if you see anything good, anything kind, anything compassionate in the people around you, if you've ever been the recipient of love from Christians, 
I want you to know that this is why. It's not because we're naturally good people. It's not because we were raised that way. No, it's because of this cross. It's because we recognize by the grace of God how much we've been loved that we can't help do at least a little bit to showcase the love of God for others. So if you're not a believer, I want you to know that, how, how, how well or how poorly you've seen Christians love. They're loving out of the blood of Jesus. And that may sound very strange to you, but it's true. So I would encourage you to get to know your Christian friends better, to talk to them about what motivates them, to come to an understanding of the cross of Christ yourself so that you could love this way. And that's only going to happen if Jesus Christ becomes your Lord. If you turn from your sins and trust in him, in his death and in his resurrection, that is the gospel. You need it. I'd, be, I'd love to talk to you about that more after the service. Now to my brothers and sisters in Christ, about the love of God, I would say this. The moment you take your eyes off of the cross, your love will cool. Looking away from the cross is like turning the stove off. The burner may stay warm for a few minutes, but eventually it will be as cold as the room. So keep your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Never get, never get bored singing about the cross, right? If someday you leave Mount Vernon, never go to a church that is ashamed to sing about the blood of Jesus. And I'm not saying you've got to sing this song or that song. I'm not saying that. But, but, the, but the cross of Jesus Christ has to be what that church is, is rallying around and proclaiming because that's the fount of our love. At the moment our eyes aren't on Jesus and on his death in the place of sinners like us, that's the day our love begins to die. And I know I could have said a lot about evangelism, about, about Paul's going to these Gentile unbelievers and eventually going to the Gentile world. I mean, we're at the start of his second missionary journey. But, but remember, your evangelism will only be as strong as your love is deep. So if you really are one of the many Christians who say, you know, I wish I were a better evangelist. The first stop on the road to becoming a better evangelist is become a better lover. Grow to love God more deeply. That's the only way you're going to love the lost enough to make those little and sometimes painful steps of making Christ known to them. The love of God. Third, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Right? Acts chapter 16, verse 4 says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul didn't just love the lost. As I've already said, he loved the church. He preached to the lost and he preached to congregations that had already been established. And Paul was a good friend. He, he spent time with believers whom he had seen come to know the Lord. He helped them to keep their eyes on the cross. He labored to strengthen their faith. And quite often, as they grew stronger, they became more evangelistic. And lo and behold, it says there in verse 5, they increased in numbers daily. How did Paul do this? 
Like, what's the secret sauce of the church being strengthened in faith and increasing in numbers daily? Look again at verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, them being those established, albeit young, congregations, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, the decisions refer to the letter that had been written by James and the apostles and the elders at the church in Jerusalem, right, that we talked about before. That letter had basically two purposes. The first purpose was to make it clear that circumcision is not necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. So the letter communicated that quite clearly. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then the second purpose of the letter, right, was to tell especially Gentile believers that they should beware not to offend their Jewish neighbors. Right, so recognizing salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Please be sensitive to your Jewish believing and unbelieving neighbors who are having a hard time wrestling with the way the gospel has now fulfilled the law. So that's basically the purpose of the letter. So Paul is going around these, these young churches and he's explaining all this apostolic teaching to them. He's explaining the gospel. Paul visited churches and gave them this teaching, delivering the gospel, telling them the word of God, sharing with them the knowledge of God. So that's what Paul did. He shared with them the knowledge of God. Listen carefully. The faith of these churches grew stronger when their knowledge of God grew deeper. The faith of these churches grew stronger when their knowledge of God grew deeper. And it's true today. Your faith will grow stronger when your knowledge of God is deeper. So let's beware of pitting knowledge against action. As if what is true knowledge is not inherently practical action. Okay? Application is important, really important. Knowing what we need to do, really important. As James said, faith without works is dead. But how is our faith strengthened in such a way that it leads to good works? And the answer appears to be knowledge. Knowledge is the wood. Faith is the fire. Heat is the works. No fire, no heat. No knowledge, no fire. And so the, the churches that Paul visited clearly were burning with evangelistic heat. They increased in numbers daily. Why? Because Paul had filled them with knowledge, a knowledge of God. We need to grow in knowledge so that we can grow in faith. So, I want to be clear about a couple things. I'm not done yet. I want to be clear about a couple things. Uh, again, I'm not saying application is unimportant. I strive to give application in, in my teaching, in my preaching. We encourage others who teach the Bible at Mount Vernon to give application. Help us see what this looks like to live it out in daily life. 
Application is important, okay? I'm also not implying that knowledge is enough, right? Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge by itself is just going to make you a, a proud person that nobody wants to be around. Knowledge is not enough. We, take, we need love. Knowledge plus love. But just because knowledge is not enough doesn't mean knowledge is unnecessary. Again, it is the, the wood that fuels the fire of our faith, that burns with the good works that commend our faith to those around us. We need to grow in knowledge so we can grow in faith. So let me give you a few examples of this, just to drive it home. Without knowledge, for example, there is no salvation. What does God desire? 1 Timothy 2, 4, all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge and salvation are inseparable. Knowing the truth isn't merely enough, but salvation is not merely a human experience, a human decision, but knowledge is necessary. All people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Without knowledge, there's no salvation. Another example. Without knowledge, there's no teaching. And I'm not just talking about like me teaching you. There's like no teaching in the body. Romans 15, 14, Paul says to the church, you yourselves are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul says, because of the knowledge that, that I've given you, because of the knowledge that you have, you're now able to instruct each other. Right? No knowledge, no mutual edification. No knowledge, no discipleship. No knowledge, no teaching. Without knowledge, there's no peace. There's no peace. I love how Peter begins his second letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. Do you want to grow in grace and in peace? Do you want to be more content with your lot in life? Do you want to rest from anxiety and despair? Peter says you need knowledge. Without knowledge, there's going to be no peace. Without knowledge, there's no holiness. Right? When Paul prays for the church in Philippi, he prays that their love would abound in knowledge. He prays for knowledge. Why? So that they can approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless. Philippians 1.10, the knowledge of God helps them approve what's good, helps them walk in a way that pleases the Lord. No knowledge, no holiness. Without knowledge, there's no confidence. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would have knowledge so that they would know their future hope, the glorious inheritance that they have with the saints. No knowledge, no hope, no confidence, no assurance of your salvation. Without knowledge, there's no worship. No worship in Paul's letter to the Romans. He spends 11 chapters sort of unpacking dense theology, right? chapter after chapter. And then in chapter 11, verse 33, Paul begins to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And then a few verses later, he says, to him be glory forever. Amen. Right? There are times when we need to be told what to do. Live like this, serve this way, volunteer here, and so forth. Application is important. But don't forget the power of simply knowing God. The knowledge of God leads Christians to worship, to drop 
their jaws in awe of God. No knowledge, no worship. Without knowledge, there is, there is no Christ. In other words, when I am talking about the knowledge of God, I'm not just talking about dry statistics like so-and-so won the Super Bowl in 1984, or there are this many ounces in a pound. Right? Those, are, those are statistics. That's knowledge. But the knowledge of God is about more than facts. Right? It's, it's, it's this precious, soul-satisfying knowledge of Christ. Right? It's the kind of knowledge that, that deepens a friendship. Okay? It's the type of knowledge that sweetens a marriage. But that's the kind of knowledge that that we're talking about. And so Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would be filled with all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That's a mouthful. But in Colossians, Paul is praying for the church that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's mystery. And then he goes on to say, which is Christ? Do you want to know Christ like deeply? Well, knowledge. You need the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, Vernon, it is important to do things. It is important to apply the truth to your life, to take action. Faith without works is dead. But you need to know something first. You need apostolic teaching. You need gospel truth. You need the Word of God. This is how our faith is strengthened. This is how their faith was strengthened. As Paul simply went from gathering to gathering, sharing with them the apostolic Word of God. This is how our faith is strengthened. Friends, growing in knowledge is not always entertaining. Right? I know I may be always entertaining, right? Growing in knowledge isn't. It is not always entertaining. It is usually hard work, right? Certainly the best teachers can make learning seem virtually always fun and easy. That is certainly possible. But usually learning, gaining the knowledge, even the knowledge of God, is hard work, but it is good. So as Paul begins his second missionary journey, I want you to see what he did. He went to churches like ours, and he strengthened their faith by sharing the knowledge of God. It's the fire of our faith that produces the heat of works. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in your faith, start with God's Word. Dive into Scripture. Take advantage of the opportunities that you have find here at Mount Vernon to study in community. Growth and knowledge, not optional. Right? Necessary, only way to grow in Christ. Only way to know Christ is to grow in knowledge. And so may we, as God's people, grow together in the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and, and ultimately in the love of God. All right? Now, many of you are aware that last Sunday, Bill Barnes there, Bill, raise your hand. Okay. Bill Barnes agreed to become the pastor of Byron Baptist Church about two hours south of us. Bill, his wife Rebecca, and their two children, Liam and Clay, joined us when Bill started as a pastoral intern. And today is their last Sunday at Mount Vernon. 
We trust not the last time we'll ever see you in this building, but their last Sunday with us. Bill, as you shepherd Byron, remember they need the knowledge of God. They need solid teaching from the Bible. Be faithful to teach them so that their faith may be strengthened. The occasional bit of levity in a sermon won't kill them. They need the knowledge of God. Trust the preaching of God's word. It really is God's plan to grow their faith, and if God wills, to increase their numbers. Bill, remember that you need the wisdom of God. You'll need wisdom as you reach out to your city and as you shepherd the flock of God. And when you don't know what to do, go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help. Seek his counsel. God loves to give wisdom. He gave wisdom to Paul, an apostle, but, but just a man. And God will give you wisdom too. And Bill, not most important, but as important, and so often neglected, remember you need the love of God. Don't let a day of ministry go by where you fail to go back to that cross. That is the source of love. Marvel at Christ's love for you, Bill Barnes, every day. And you will grow to love your church every day. There will be days when you are discouraged and maybe even wonder if you're doing any good, especially on those days. Love your church. Be thankful for them. Love your wife. Love your children. Be thankful for them. Love them as your Savior who gave himself up for you. Now, Bill and Rebecca, I'm going to ask you to come and join me up here. And congregation, we want to pray for the Barnes family as uh, they leave tomorrow for Byron. Uh, we're going to get a chance uh, very briefly tonight uh, to pray for them again. But with all of you here, uh, the elders and I are going to pray for the Barnes family. So we love you guys. It has been such a joy to have you in our lives these many months. And we are so convinced that God would have you go and shepherd this flock. And uh, congregation, uh, my plea with you is that you not forget the Barnes. Uh, they're only two hours south, that you pray for them that you occasionally do what you can to encourage them as he seeks to bring reformation and revival to a church that is very excited to have him as their pastor and Bill and Rebecca and Liam and Clay as part of their church family. So we're going to end this morning's service by going to the Lord in prayer. We're going to begin with Larry, then Pat's going to pray, I'm going to close us, and then I think we're going to sing a really fitting hymn that we would rest in Christ who's more important than anything.